One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. You know, in the midst of everything this week, we're, we are, like I said before, entering into a new season of life here in our church. Um, in the fall and in the spring here at Holy Cross, we order our lives as a congregation around a book of the Bible, uh, which is to say, kind of during, during our time here, we'll preach through, verse by verse, through a particular book of the, one of the different books of the Bible. Um, but in the summer, because of travel and all that stuff, we order our lives around a topic. And, and this summer, we're ordering our lives around uh, the idea of, uh, of this. What are, the, what are the practices laid out for us in the Bible that are normal for us as followers of Jesus? In other words, what, is, what does it mean to practice the Christian life? Okay? So, uh, we're, like I said, we're calling this series The Walk uh, since the New Testament speaks of uh, f- following after Jesus, of walking with Him, of walking after Him. And so it seemed appropriate. Uh, we'll, we'll call this The Walk, right? Um, in a sense, what we're going to be looking at is how after we've encountered Jesus, how do we grow in knowing Him and in showing Him to others? But we begin this series with a kind of a, an assumption, a presupposition. Okay, it kind of undergirds the whole rest of the series, so it's a good thing you're here uh, to get this. The, the reality is is that Christianity at its core isn't about practices; it's about a person. It, it, even though in the in the midst of everything. Uh, and the, just like everything else, Christianity has practices, it has behaviors, but it's not about rules, it's about a relationship. And so this morning, we begin looking there at walking and abiding. So if you have your place in John chapter 15, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. That's our practice here. I'll be reading verses 1 to 11 in John's Gospel. Some of the... This portion of John's Gospel is part of what, what is, scholars will call the farewell discourse. John is listening to Jesus say these things in the upper room the night before, or the night in which Jesus was betrayed. This is God's Word. Let's hear it that way. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. And already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we're all in this room for different reasons. Some of us are, are eager during this time. Some of us are bored. We're already thinking about where we're going for lunch with our mamas. We, we, are, uh, we are in this room for lots of different reasons. But ultimately, we're in this room because you wanted us here. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and speak to us, uh, whether, we are, um, whether we've been Christians for a long time or we've never stepped foot in a church. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. And preach your gospel to us. Holy Spirit, would you let Jesus and his cross come to the fore and the one who speaks fall to the wayside. Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So I finished college as a religion major. I finished as a religion major. I began as something else. But I finished as a religion major. And what I mean by that is religion and not Christianity. Okay? Okay. I went to a state school. There wasn't a Christianity major. So uh, as a religion major, that means that I studied world religions. And I found, as I studied, a consistent thread that, that wove itself through pretty much every other perspective uh, that I didn't find in Christianity. Because you see, normally when you call something a religion, what you mean is you're talking about a, a set of teachings and practices that are kind of meant to help the individual engage in the transcendent, right? Whether that's a god or some force, or maybe you're trying to engage in some inner consciousness, what have you. Um, it's about trying to engage with the transcendent. In other words, comparing religions is often about um, ethics and ritual. It's often about ethics, like doing what is right, and ritual, like doing certain religious things. Now, the reality is Christianity has that, right? I mean, you are here in this place which means that there's certain ritual that is done. Like there's standing and there's sitting and there's singing. I mean, where else do you sing with a bunch of people, right? I mean, where, where do you do that Because when it's not a birthday? Uh, you know, it's, there are rituals that are part of it. Uh, and so the idea that, that religion is about ethics and ritual is so standard that many of us in this room believe that that's what Christianity is about. Right? The Christianity is really about doing the right things and engaging in the right practices. But see, Christianity isn't about that. Like I said, Christianity isn't about practices, but a person. It's not about rules, but a relationship. And so when you remove Jesus from Christianity, and when I say remove, I mean by claiming that, um, whether you claim that, well, you know, he's a nice guy, but I don't really know if he really existed. Claim that, you know, I'm not sure he was born. Um, not sure we have any knowledge of what he actually did and the dying thing, I mean, maybe, but the, ra- the rising and resurrection thing, never. Like that, if, if you remove Jesus in that way from Christianity, you got nothing. There's nothing left. There is no Christianity. And this truth means that before we talk about walking, we need to talk about abiding. Before we talk about doing, we need to talk about being. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, there's, there's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. This morning, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at the definition of the Christian life or the de- definition of a Christian. We're going, to look at, we're going to look at the power of a Christian. And then finally, we're going to look at the motive of a Christian. Okay? The definition, power, and the motive. Got that? All right. Let's get going. Let's begin this morning by, by looking at the definition. And we're going to look at the branches of the vine. Look down at verse 1. Now, let's be honest. If you've, if you've been reading the Bible for a while, let's just be honest about the fact that most of us wish that Jesus would stop using metaphors and would just say what he means. You know, because like the metaphors take interpretation. Can, we just, can he just say what he means? But he, he doesn't. He, he, he uses metaphors. And 
the thing is about this metaphor, it's not simply illustrative, it has a history, right? If you were, in the Jew, if you were a Jew in the first century, and you heard Jesus say, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser, you would recognize a very powerful claim. And here's what I mean. In Psalm 80, and for those of you who aren't familiar, the Psalms are like right in the middle of the Bible. Um, they're in the Old Testament. They are basically like the songbook of God's people. Like that was how it's poetry and song and all this stuff is meant to be set to music. Um, but in Psalm 80, it uses the same language. It describes Israel as the vine that God brought out of Egypt and planted in a new land. And and this psalm would have been well known to, to those that Jesus is talking to because it is one that cries out for uh, rescue. Cries out for rescue. And of course, Jews in the first century were under the, the um, oppression of Rome, and so they cried out for rescue all the time. So this was one that would have been very well known to them. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, what he means is, I am the true Israel. It's me. And now that would be shocking enough, but the reality is we don't, you and I, we're like, okay, so what? Like, what, what does that mean? Because we, we, most of us won't grasp the full power of that statement until we understand what Israel was supposed to be about. So stay with me for a minute, because this is important. Uh, I know that many of us believe the Bible is a book of rules. It's not a book of rules. It's actually a book, of, it's a storybook. One consistent story from start to finish. That doesn't mean it doesn't have rules, it does. But those rules, you can't really understand them apart from the story. Here, here's... Here's that story in outline, right? God makes the world, he makes it good, and he places humanity over, uh, over the world, like in the world but over it, to be in relationship with him, to be in a dependent relationship with him, and for God to be able to rule and to, to care for creation through humanity. In time, though, humanity believed a lie. God didn't really love us, didn't really care for us, didn't want our good, but instead was trying to use us and to hold us back from what our potential was. And so ultimately we, we turned from him, we betrayed him, and that had disastrous consequences. I mean, first, you know, like if you betray somebody, you know that one of the first things that happens is like guilt, right? You can't betray someone and not have some semblance of, of guilt. Now, when we think of guilt, we think of it like a speeding ticket, right? Like, you know, who sets these arbitrary numbers, da-da-da-da-da, or like breaking curfew. Like, when we think of God and guilt, that's what we're thinking of. We're like, why does he take this to be such a big deal? The Bible, though, doesn't speak of it like breaking curfew or breaking the speed limit. It speaks of it like breaking, like uh, adultery, like breaking marriage vows. Uh, it is that kind of betrayal. And so before God, we are guilty, but we're also broken. And what I mean is, though we are created to be dependent on God, now we're independent of Him by nature. By nature. Now we become that, that we are that. We live out of the lie that we can be like God and that we must be. And this is true of every person on the planet. Listen to me. This is true of every person on the planet. Not just those kind of people. Not just people from a certain neighborhood or socioeconomic status or through racial divides. We're talking about every person on the planet by nature, independent of God. Our natural bent is now away from God. We are alienated from Him. Right? Now that's the bad news. But the good news is that God promises right there to make things better. He says in, in, right there in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, He says that I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make this right. Now think about that for a minute. That is like, if you're married, you, you come home one day and you tell your spouse, look, just cheated on you. 
No, it's worse than that. Just cheated on you, and I have no intention of stopping. And your spouse looks at you and goes, Ooh, that hurts really bad. But I'm going to make this right. I'm going to reconcile us. Think about that. That's crazy talk. But that's what God did. We didn't earn that. He says this not after humanity promised to do better, like, oh, yeah, we, we ate that thing, but I'll do better in the future, or when we actually proved that we could do better. He just comes and says, I'm going to do it. It's like purely out of what, what the Bible calls grace, right? He just promises. And over the next few chapters, we see that promise develop because he chooses this dude named Abraham, and he says, and Abraham... If you don't know anything about Abraham, Abraham was not like a, a worshiper of God. As a matter of fact, at the time, we're told that like nobody was. He, he lived in a city called Ur, very creative name, uh, often in, uh, in the ancient Near East. And he worshiped false gods. Right? So he's betraying God at that moment. And God comes in and says, no, 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 you're going to come with me. I'll show you where we're heading on the way. And by the way, I'm going to use your family to heal the world. I'm going to make things right through your family. And that family, the family of Abraham, comes to be known as Israel. You with me? So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, I am the true Israel, what he is saying is that it is through me that God is going to deal with guilt, brokenness, and alienation. Because you see, there was a consistent problem with Abraham's family that you see as you, as you read through the Old Testament. They never seem to be able to get it right because they were part of the problem. (laughs) They're part of the problem just like we are. There's nothing different about them that wasn't different, that's not the same with us. And so the Old Testament ends with us still waiting for someone to come and rescue us. And so Jesus comes on the scene, he says, Guys, you don't get it. I'm the true vine. What he's saying is, I'm God's rescue plan. I know. And listen, that would have been shocking, right? Because he's talking to people who would consider themselves part of Israel. He's saying, you're not understanding it. It's me. It's not us. It's me. He is the one who has come to rescue us from our sin, our guilt, our brokenness, our alienation from God. Now, the reality is, is that this claim is also a little offensive, right? I mean, some of us are probably offended right now because Jesus comes on the scene. He says, he says that he's the true vine, which implies that there are false ones, Right? It implies there are false ones. As a matter of fact, it actually implies there's lots of false ones. And so when, when he's claiming that he's the true vine, what he is claiming, in fact, is, he is, that, is that he is God's only vine. Like the only one. The only answer to our guilt, our brokenness, and our alienation. In other words, Jesus is not a pluralist. I know that really strikes against us, but Jesus himself is saying it. Like He's not a pluralist. Because the reality is that all of us have some kind of vine. We all have something that we're looking to that we think that's, that's going to make things right for us. Like, like, uh, for some of us, it's sincerity. Right? If, as long as you're sincere, we believe that, you know, we, believe, we can believe whatever we want to believe, whether that's like I should go to church every week and do good stuff or like in fairies and my little ponies. But as long as we're sincere in that, God will be like, I mean, you were wrong, but man. Sincere, you really believed in My Little Ponies. Come on in, like that, that's what we will we'll tend to think, right? Uh, but but for some of us, it's not it's not sincerity so much as morality. As long as I'm good, I do the right things. I do good, God will like me. Um, you know, He's going to be okay with me. 
but maybe it's not that for you. Maybe it's more like religion, right? It doesn't really matter what I do Monday through Saturday or Sunday through Friday, depending on your particular form of religion. As long as I'm in that place on Saturday or Sunday, I'm good, right? As long as I've got my, my, uh, my little di- dispensation, God's happy with me because I do the religious thing. I go to church, I go to synagogue, I go to mosque. At least I'm religious. Now for other, others of us, though, it, it doesn't mean that at all. It means being loving, right? We think, look, God doesn't care if you're sincere or religious. All those people are hypocrites. Like, what God cares about is whether or not you're loving, which to us means being nice and accepting, right? That, that's loving. Loving is being nice um, and accepting. You name it, friends, we all have a vine. We all have some way of being that we think will make us right, will make things right for us. And it's exclusive. Look, it's all exclusive. If you're here this morning and you think it's about love, and you're like, it's about being loving, it's about being nice and accepting, then you don't really care about the sincere person. Because if they're not nice and accepting, then they're not, God doesn't like them. And you certainly don't like, more, like the, the religious folk, because like I said, they're hypocrites. You're right, by the way. We are. There's room for one more. Like, we got plenty of room, all right? Like or, or you're like, look, if you're, if you're good and moral, and you're like, look, man, you can go to church on Sunday, but I'm the one, I'm the good one. The rest of the week, I'm the good one. It's all exclusive. We, we all have these exclusive claims. And Jesus is no different, except he says this. It, it isn't a practice. It's not a set of beliefs. The vine is me, he says. And that leads us to verses 2 and 4. He says this, look, branches in me that bear fruit, my father prunes, or literally the word means cleans, the ones that, he, that don't bear fruit, he removes. And then he says, look, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. All right? Now, what is he talking about? It's basically this. If you want to be part of the vine, you have to be a branch. Okay? If you want to have a, take part in the vine... You have to be a branch. In other words, you have to be connected to Jesus. Because some of us here, like, we want to believe that Jesus is a really good teacher. He said some really good things. He's kind of a good guy, said some good things, but that's about it. Look, here's the thing. The writers of the New Testament, like the rest of the Bible, like the, so we're in John, like if you keep going to the right, the rest of the Bible, these guys said and wrote and taught things that would get them killed about Jesus, and they knew it would get them killed, and one of the things that they said was that that idea that Jesus is just a good teacher, that, that's not it at all. Way off. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that got them killed. <laughs> they said, no, 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 you, you don't understand. That's not it. You see, if our problem is guilt, then a good teacher doesn't help. We need somebody to deal with our guilt. If, if our problem is being stuck by nature, uh, independent of God, then we need someone to come and to rescue us. If our, if our problem is that... that that we are just completely independent of God. We need some way to get back into dependence with Him, and, and teaching isn't, isn't going to help that. But these things are exactly what Jesus came to do. Because you and I were made for a life of, of, of perfect dependence on God and of, and of loving others. And so God took on humanity in Jesus, and He lived that life. He lived the life that we couldn't. But Jesus also died on the cross to bear our guilt before God. Look, You and I cannot make up for our betrayal of God. You cheat on your spouse and you bring flowers home. It does not make it better. Right? It does not make it better. 
Nothing makes it better. The question is not whether or not you can make it up. You can't. And we can't do it with God either. So Jesus came to bear our guilt in our place. But then He rose from the dead so that if we place our faith in Him, if we place our dependence on Him, that's what we mean by faith. I know Faith can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. What the Bible means is like putting all of your hopes on Him. All of your dependence back on Him. And when we do that, we return to the God we were made for. And this is what Jesus means here. If you want to be a part, if you want to take part in God's rescue plan, if you want, if you want things to be made right between you and God, you have to be, if you want to be part of the vine, you have to be a branch. In other words, you have to place your faith in Him. And that's what He means when He tells His disciples, look, look guys, you've already been made clean. What He means is, I've already told you this before. I've already told you if you want out, like, I'm, I'm your hope. And so stay in Me. Being joined to Jesus is the answer to their sin, and so He says, stay in that. Now, last thing about these verses. Look, look at verse 4 again. He says this. He says, remain in me. Okay. Now here's the big difference that I was talking about earlier between Christianity and everything else. Christianity begins and ends with Jesus. Begins and ends. We can't make ourselves right before God. We can't do enough good things to outweigh our bad. You and I can't be sincere enough. We can't be religious enough, loving enough, have enough right beliefs. Look, I don't care if you walk into this place this morning with a laundry list of immorality or a nice, sparkly, fun, star-filled list of good morality. Jesus says it's about remaining in Him, not about those things. Other systems don't say that. Islam, uh, Judaism, secularism, Buddhism, they, they, they give you a list of things to do to make yourselves right. Christianity gives you Jesus. Start and end, Jesus. What will you do with Him? Listen, listen. If you're here this morning and, and you have never been confronted with the claims of Christianity, the claims of Jesus, I, I just want you, do not leave this place without hearing that question clearly. I'm not asking you, what do you do with, with these ethics over here? Or our Christian stance on this? Or da 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 da. We'll, we'll get to that. What are you going to do with Jesus? His life, His death, His resurrection, His words. What do you do with Him? Because look, it doesn't matter if Buddha actually sat under that tree when he figured it all out and finally escaped the, the karmic cycle, right? What really matters is whether or not he had his teachings right. But with Christianity, if Jesus didn't live, die, and rise again, we are all fools. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? That's the definition of a Christian. Let's look at the power of the Christian in the power of relationship. Look at verse 5. He says this, Look, I'm the vine. If you want to bear fruit, you have to stay in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. All right. Now, this is, this is key, so I need you to check back in if you've checked out. When, when Jesus talks about fruit, when he's talking about fruit, we, we have to understand a couple of things. We have to get that in the metaphor, fruit on the branches, look, fruit on the branches is what the vine is for, Right? If you have a grapevine, no grapes, not a grapevine, right? So the, the vine is for the, it's there to produce the grapes. At the same time, branches cannot make fruit unless they are connected to the vine. Because it's vines that, that the branches get nutrients, right? They actually produce anything of value. And the same is true of the Christian life. Remember the story that I just, I told you a few minutes ago. We were made for dependence on God. 
dependence on Him. The goal then is to be in a dependent relationship with God. The goal is not to get to a point at which you no longer need Him. That, that's not the point at all. Jesus is saying if you want to bear fruit, if you want to do things of value before God, in other words, you have to stay connected to Him. Here's why this matters. Because many of us just kind of intuitively think that if we can, we can do good before God, He's going to like us. Right? Now, many of us may not admit that because some of us in this room have, have claimed to be followers of Jesus. We, we claim to be doing that like a long time ago. Like years ago. Rick, I walked the aisle. Youth camp. It was great. Did that thing. Like I... But the reality is, and, and you may even argue with me, say, no, no, Rick, I get it. It's all by grace. Really? So when bad things happen to you, and you're angry, Because bad things are happening. Do you know what you're betraying? The thought that, God, I did it right. Why aren't you giving to me? I did it the right way. What is going on? Isn't that the way things are supposed to work? I do good, and I get good back. Right? We call that around here the the, the idea that God is a Coke machine. Right? The Coke machine God. Here's the problem with that. Some of you are like, what? Here's what I mean. Like, you know, you put in your quarter... You push your button, you get your blessing, right? I do my good thing, I put it in, I push my button, ooh, blessing, ooh. And you're like, ooh, diet, you know? But, uh, but it's, the point is, is this, like we want to use Him. But here's the problem. The problem isn't just that God isn't a Coke machine that you can't use Him. The problem is you're using the wrong currency. Because you think, I do my good stuff and I put it in. That ain't a quarter, friends. That's like a euro. Like, uh, you won't... Go in because God is not looking for that. If you are doing good things to get to God, or doing good things to get to God to like you, then you are doing them independently, which means before God, listen to me, before God, they are sin. So I don't I don't care how outwardly moral you are. Some of you in this room are way more moral than me. I don't deny that. I have a lot to learn from you. I am by far not the most consistent Christian in the world. Lord, help me. No, that is not the case. If you're expecting that of the dude behind the music stand, like, don't, don't. That is not who I am. But the reality is this. God is not looking for moral. He's looking for dependent. He's looking for faith in Him. Not in how good you can do on your own. It's the wrong kind of currency. But others of us, others of us, though, need to hear this because we think that we become Christians and then we work hard to get better, right? So if I'm going to use Christian language real quick, what we would say is that I'm made right with God or justified by faith. Trust in Jesus. I got me saved, Rick. I get it. But then we become more like Jesus. We are sanctified by just working really hard. Jesus says this. If you want to bear fruit... If you want to be sanctified, remain in me. In other words, just as you came to Christ by faith, you grow in him by faith. Friends, the power of the Christian life is not found in you. It is not found in you. Like the Apostle Paul, who, one of the writers in the New Testament, says later in the book of Philippians, he says, yes, he says to work out your salvation. Do it. And then the very next verse he says, because it is God who is working. 
Not just to do it, but to even create the will to do it. He says, it is God who is working in you both to will and to do. It's like, you go work it out. But guess what? Even when you do great and you go, look how great God is for doing this through me. It is God who is working in you to will and to do. The power of the Christian life is found by growing and knowing Christ more. But that brings us to the price of betrayal. Look at verse 6. Jesus says this, If someone does not remain in me, he will be cast away like the branch that is withered and gathered and cast into the fire and burns. All right, now I need you to listen close if you can because this is, there are lots of places we can misstep here. First and foremost, Jesus in this, in this verse is using a judgment metaphor, right? It's a judgment metaphor. Now that's hard for many of us, but think with me. I doubt there is a person in this room who has a problem with God judging evil. We have been confronted with that as a congregation this week, have we not? No one in this room has a problem with God judging evil. I mean, if you think about the worst possible thing you can think of, in, more than likely, and look, you could be like, Rick, you're wrong, man. But more than likely, I'm thinking you don't have a problem with God judging that. The problem is, the real issue, is that we think God should, base, should judge based on our determination of what is right. Our determination of what is wrong and not on his. We don't have a problem that God judges evil. We have a problem that he uses his standard and not ours. That's the problem. We don't like his standard. But basically, what, what it comes to is this. Will you return to dependence on God through Jesus or persist in having things your own way? Remember, the goal is not being a little better than your neighbor or your coworker or your roommate the standard is God. It's not us. And that dude is as perfect as it comes. What's more, friends, the standard isn't religion, it's relationship. That's what he means when he says, if you don't remain in me. Listen, you may claim to be a Christian here in this place this morning. But the question is this. Are you bearing fruit from being relationally connected to Jesus? Notice I didn't say, are you going to church faithfully? Are you reading your Bible once in a while? Are you being nice to people? Giving good tips? Those are good things, don't get me wrong. But that's not... The question is, are you bearing fruit from being relationally connected to Jesus? Because if you have a fruit, if you have a branch that has fruit on it, but it's not connected to the vine, more likely than not, the, the fruit is bad. Right, And if you have a, vine, or a branch that's on the vine that looks withered and doesn't have any fruit on it, it's dead. Trying to be good apart from relationship with Jesus leaves you in your guilt, friend. And trying to be religious and coming to church without an actual relationship with Christ does not fool him. <laughs> does not fool him. One of the most terrifying, in my mind, passages in the Bible is when Jesus is talking about... He, it's Jesus. out of the mouth of Jesus himself, right? Like, Jesus. We're all like, isn't he really nice? Well, at one point he said, like, there's going to be like some really religious people who I never knew. I, I never knew. And they, they come to me and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I did all these great things. He said, I, I didn't know you. Like, it, it's about being in him. We can't fool him. Like, some of us in this place have been coming to church since we were little. But our hearts are far from Jesus. You've been coming to church since you were little. Our hearts are far from Him. We look good on the outside, but inside we're angry at God for not giving us what we think we deserve. If that's true of you, friends, you do not need to repent of your immorality. 
You need to repent of your righteousness that is leading you straight to hell. Look, I love you. I love you. But that is the, that is the truth. If your morality is keeping you from Jesus, if your morality or your religiousness is keeping you from thinking you need Jesus, please lay it down. Lay it down and turn to Christ because you will never bear fruit unless you remain in God's vine. And God's vine is not this place. It is a person. The person of Jesus. So the power for the Christian life is found in a vibrant relationship with Jesus that results in the bearing of fruit. But what does that look like and why do we desire that? Right? That brings us to the motive. First, let's look at why we obey. Look down at verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, In the same way that the Father loved me, I loved you. Remain in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. All right, stop there. Because some of you right now, you're like, all right, this is what I thought. First he talked about hell, and now he's talking about what I need to do to stay out of it. All right? Uh, Here's the rules. Here they come. Not exactly. Okay? Believe it or not, I know most of us hated these classes in high school or college, but grammar is really important here. So I need you to zone in. Grammar. Here it comes. Because you, most of us think we keep... We keep commands to earn something, right? We hear this and we think, okay, this is a conditional thing. I do, I keep Jesus' commandments. Try that, by the way. I, I've never had a whole lot of luck in that. But uh, you, you try to keep Jesus' commandments and then, and then we're good. Uh, in other words, we hear love, we hear the love of God, the love of Jesus as conditional. If I do this, this will happen. It's actually the opposite. When Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I have loved you, those two words that are, that are verbs for love, like I have loved you. Um, in the original, because the Bible's written in Greek, not written in, in English originally, that is given, the, 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 the tense of that verb is such that it is a one-time event. Something that happened in the past. Boom, done, and creates a new state of being. And so when he's saying, I have loved you, he's saying not, Go work yourself, go work harder, and then I will. He's saying, it already happened. Therefore, go. It's already been done. Therefore, obey. In other words, keeping God's commands doesn't make Him love you. We don't obey for God's love. We obey from God's love. Listen. Christians do not obey God because they are afraid that God is standing over them, ready to squish them, when they mess up. Right? That is not Christianity. At best, that is paganism. That is not Christianity. That said, love is relational, right? And all relationships have boundaries. Like, they all have boundaries. And you know this. Like, you know that there are some things that certain people can do that will move them outside of relationship with you. That will happen. That can happen. Uh, but, but it, look, if, if you marry someone, you are making an exclusive relationship. And you don't do right by your spouse to get them to be your spouse. You do right by your spouse because they already are your spouse. Right? The same is true here. Some of you, though, are thinking like, Rick, that can't be right because that that sounds way too good. I know. I know. Right? It is. And then you're thinking like, are you saying to me that God's love for me is not determined by what I do? Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying to you. And maybe you're thinking too, like, but I've never experienced any, I I don't even know what that would be like. I know. Listen to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes everything. It even changes why we obey. 
We do not obey to achieve. We obey because we've received. We do not obey to get anything from God. We obey because we've been given everything by God. You can obey in freedom because Jesus has accomplished everything you'll ever need and He has done it all for you. But let's finish with being filled with joy, right? Because the reality is that most of us in this room think that obeying God is like the least fulfilling thing we can do. We think about obedience and we think of dudes in brown robes starving themselves and whipping themselves, right? Like that's being obedient, okay? Uh, And and some of that is because when we imagine obedience, um, we, we have a picture of obeying God that's more cultural than biblical, right? Like obeying God means... Um, never touching a, a drop of alcohol, or it means um, you know never having fun or being really socially awkward, right? Like our, our definition of obeying God has been more defined by Ned Flanders than by the Bible. Uh, but, but look, we, we also think that obeying is about staying away from things, and it is partly, but it's also about it's also about pursuing things. Obeying is about a character that is shaped by God's Spirit through the Word of God, but it's also about a mission shaped by God's Spirit through the Word. And so Jesus says this, I have said these things to you so that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be uh, full, is what the ESV says. The other word is complete, is another way of saying it, or or overflowing. Uh, Listen to me, the Bible says that you and I were made for a dependent relationship with God. Made for it. Made for it. We were made for Him. That means that our flourishing, our joy is to be found in Him. Jesus is not saying to you, come to Me and be miserable. Yay! Like That is not what He's saying. What He's saying is, come and be part of the life that you were made for. But let me be very clear. There is a difference between joy and happiness. There is a difference between joy and happiness. If, every, if you came to Jesus and He just made you happy, happy, you know, like, if He just made you happy, then the whole city would be in this place. And we'd all be using Him like a drug to get happy. That's not what it's about. The Christian life is not all roses and fairies. If you were sold that at some point, I am sorry, you were sold a false bill of sale. Someone lied to you. That is not the case. Joy is more like satisfaction. It's more like rest. It's like the feeling that comes from doing what you were made for. Like, you may or may not be happy, but you are joyful. You are satisfied. You have rest. Okay? Let me conclude. This abiding in Jesus is what we were made for, friends. It is the sole foundation of the Christian life. In other words, hear me. You cannot be a Christian without trusting in Jesus and Him alone to make you right before God. You may be in this room, you may be saying, you may have been thinking that you were, because look, you're American and you're not Muslim, right? Being a Christian means trusting in Jesus and in Him alone to make you right before God. It is also the sole power of the Christian life. You cannot grow in the Christian life without growing in your understanding of your need for Jesus and growing in your appropriation of His work on your behalf. In other words, returning once again to the Gospel. But it is also the sole motivation of the Christian life. Friends, if your motivation is not from the love of God in Jesus, but to obtain the love of God in Jesus, you are not practicing Christianity. You are practicing paganism. The Lord Jesus offers you a place in the vine by grace. Not because you earned it. Not because I earned it. Trust me, I didn't. 
but by grace. And so come and abide in Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, in this place we ask that You would come and that You would be present with us more, that You would come and bring faith to us. We need that. For those of us this morning who um, are struggling in our grief and our anger, I pray that You would come and help us to keep drawing near to You. Because you, you alone are the fount of life. So Lord, be near to us and help us, we ask. All in Jesus' name, amen.